Trade Bites, the podcast about trade policy. Hello and welcome once again to Trade Bites, the podcast series by the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex and hosted by me, Chris Horseman, Deputy Editor of the Trade Policy News Service, Borderlex. In each of our podcasts in this series, we're going to be diving headfirst into the murky waters of UK trade policy. As Britain evolves its own independent trade relationships with Brussels, Washington and all points around the globe, we're going to be putting the microscope on some of the substance and some of the mechanics of these putative new agreements. Brexit has introduced us all to some exciting new acronyms, and today the phrase that pays is FTA, Free Trade Agreements. They certainly sound like a good thing, and the government has promised to conclude a whole string of them with the EU, the United States, and various other trading partners around the world in short order now that we've left the EU. But is there a catch to doing these negotiations? Are there trade-offs involved, and what are they likely to be? And how easy is it going to be to work towards a closer trade relationship with the rest of the world while we undergo what Gwyneth Paltrow would probably describe as conscious uncoupling with the European Union? These are big questions, but on today's podcast we have a panel that is unquestionably equal to the task of unpacking this particularly knotty parcel. I'm joined here in Brighton by Dr Emily Lydgate, Senior Lecturer in Environmental Law here at the University of Sussex and a Fellow of the UK Trade Policy Observatory. Joining us on the line is a veritable guru of customs policy and process, Dr Anna Josefska, an independent customs and trade consultant. We're also joined by Dr. Holger Hestermeyer, Trade Law Specialist at King's College London. And we're also joined by Maddie Timont-Jack, Senior Researcher at the Institute for Government in London. Welcome to you all, and thank you for joining us. So, Emily, let's start at the beginning. What actually is a free trade agreement and why is post-Brexit Britain so keen on negotiating and signing them? Well, Chris, FTAs are basically a way of facilitating trade. So that could mean eliminating tariffs, which are border charges for trade. FTAs eliminate most tariffs. It could mean making it easier for businesses to operate in, in partner countries or professional qualifications to be recognized, investment to be protected. It could mean making it so that there aren't regulatory barriers, for example, making sure that seat belts in cars fasten with the same kind of clasp so they pass safety inspections. And the EU is a very unique kind of FTA because it provides such um, easy conditions for trade. So an exporter in London could export to Leeds or to Paris with zero bureaucracy. And that's why the UK government is emphasizing new FTAs right now, because we are consciously uncoupling from this very easy market access with the EU. And so we're looking to increase our opportunities for export to other countries and other regions in order to make up for some of this loss. Anna Josefska, which FTAs is the UK prioritizing and on what basis do you think these priorities have been selected? Is it politics? Is it economics? A bit of both? Well, the UK's immediate concern is obviously the agreement with, with the EU because this is the, the one trade deal where we have an actual deadline to work towards. So that would be the, the, the first the immediate step. Other than that, work on rolling over 
existing agreements that the UK participates in by being a member of the EU. That still continues. Obviously, this is something that the UK government has been working on for the past three and a half years. However, there's still some work to be done. There are some agreements within that group that we know won't be achieved, such as um, uh, the trade agreement that FDA with Canada, Japan, uh, trade relationship with Turkey. But there are also some that are still in the process of negotiation. Besides these countries, there were a number of other potential FTAs that we've been discussing recently. One of the biggest ones is obviously the US. And in terms of the basis is for selecting uh, trade agreements, this one obviously is, is obviously it's an in, in, important trading partner, but it's also a bit of a PR move, if, if I can call it that. It would be quite something for the UK having left the EU to be able to sign, negotiate and sign and implement an FTA with one of the countries where the EU was not successful and was not able, hasn't been able so far to sign a trade agreement. So that was one of the potential UK priorities, a little bit less so in recent weeks as the UK slowly realizes there are some significant points of contention between the two countries and significant disagreements, but perhaps still somewhere on the radar. In terms of other trading partners, in his Brexit Day speech, the Prime Minister mentioned obviously the Commonwealth countries, as well as the other uh, group of countries that the Prime Minister mentioned were Asian countries with Japan being one of the priorities. Again, important trading partner, also one of the new EU FTAs that we were not able to replicate so far. So we have a number of countries being discussed. This will develop over the next couple of weeks. There will be a mix of what the UK wants to do and what the demand from these countries and what the requests are from these countries. Yeah, so it's a mix. And in one of our previous podcasts, we looked at specifically at this question of the uh, the UK's future relationship with the USA. Maddie Timont-Jack, who actually does the trade negotiate, who who will be doing the trade negotiations for the UK? And, and what's the role of the parliament? What's the role of the executive? Has this all been thrashed out? So, so one of the first things Theresa May did when she became prime minister was create the Department of International Trade alongside the Department of Exiting the EU as well. But basically, you know, this was her her sort of strong message of we will be doing trade deals now that we will be leaving the EU. Um, and so she set up the new department to do that. And, and it has been the Department of International Trade who's been leading on rolling over those trade deals that the UK was part of as a member of the EU. I mean, it is worth saying that the, the one big trade deal that DIP will not be leading on is the FTA with the EU. That's going to be run out of number 10 by David Frost, so the, the Prime Minister's Europe advisor with a sort of small dedicated team there to allow the Prime Minister to have proper oversight over what's going on there. But it, it really is all focused in the hands of the government. So your, your other question is, what role does Parliament have in this? Well, basically not very much at all. The way that the current legislation that, that governs Parliament's role in, in treaty negotiations is uh, the Constitutional Reform and Governance Act from 2010. And basically what it says is that before the government can ratify any treaties, this is trade agreements, but also broader than that, they must lay the treaty before Parliament. And then they have to wait basically 21 days. And in that time, MPs can vote against ratification of a treaty. 
and if they do that, then basically you have another 21 days. So they, they, they can, Parliament can, in theory, delay ratification of a trade deal. But um, it's actually up to the government to find time for Parliament to have a vote. So it could lay the treaty for Parliament and then just not schedule any time for a debate or a vote, which would mean the government would be completely free to ratify the agreement itself. Okay. Before we get to the process of ratifying trade deals, we've got to negotiate them first. And um, Holger Hestermeyer, how does the UK's desire to do a deal with the EU interact with the other trade FTA uh, negotiation objectives that the government has? Does the one predetermine the other? How do they interlink with each other? Because I think it's really important here to bear in mind that trade agreements are not simple, short agreements. They're enormously complex, very, very lengthy agreements that go into a lot of detail and can theoretically cover anything that the two parties want to be covered. And uh, that means that it is very well possible that one party asks for something that you've committed to another party not to do. So there is a lot of interaction. To give an obvious example, the European Union, for example, adheres to the precautionary principle which allows regulation to stop perceived dangers without the same level of scientific evidence that you would need in the US, arguing, well, we don't have the evidence yet, but there are indications of the dangers, and if we don't act now, it might be too late. The US doesn't like this precautionary principle, so it's quite possible to commit in one agreement to have it, which would make another agreement more difficult. If you look at the rollover agreements already, the agreements with Norway or the agreement with Switzerland cannot really be full rollover agreements because the Norwegian and Swiss relationship with the EU has a lot of regulatory components that the UK does not want to commit to. Then there's a legal point of interaction which relates to the most favoured nation clause. You might put into an agreement a clause saying if any other country comes around and gets better conditions, we want these better conditions too and we will get them automatically. Now, if such a clause is in an agreement, of course, that's another point where two negotiations will interact. Namely, if a later negotiation gives better conditions, you will have to give them to previous partners too. So, Emily, the... UK currently has access to about 40 free trade agreements as a member still of the EU Customs Union until the end of the year. What's it doing about these trade agreements and and how's that process of rolling over the existing EU FTAs going? It's going. I think that there was an initial perception that it might be, in the UK government, that it might be a bit faster and more of a sort of copy-paste endeavor than it's turned out to be because, as Holger is pointing out, some of these trade partners, even though they're existing agreements, have questions about, well, what is the UK's relationship with the EU going to be and what does that mean for what we want with the UK? I think that the most recent figure I, I saw was that the agreements had been rolled over representing about 8% of UK trade. I think the total to be covered is a bit greater than that still, that some of the more economically important FTAs still haven't been rolled over or renegotiated, including the agreement with Canada. So it's useful to realize, though, that actually we have already quite a comprehensive set of FTAs here. I mean, there's not that many countries that there's there's a, sh- a short list of countries that are still sort of out there for brand new FTAs, I think, compared to what we already have through the EU. 
Anna, if I dare ask this question in, in this way, what have FDAs ever done for us? I mean, how do they affect our lives? How do they impact the UK economy? What are some of the potential benefits or potential challenges from doing an FTA with a new trading partner? They can cover basically anything that the two parties want to include in them. However, a lot of it, especially if you look at, at customs or, or trading goods, a lot of it is kind of on um, best endeavor principle or parties will attempt or parties will discuss or setting up a dialogue between customs authorities and, and, and similar issues. What FTAs do for trade in terms of tangible benefits and very clear and binding benefits is obviously the removal of tariffs. So that is one area where we can see when we can quantify benefits is this trade agreement will remove 90% of tariff for bilateral tariffs, for example. So that's a very clear um, benefit. Obviously, it comes with strings attached and it comes with rules of origin, which we've again been discussing over the last three years, which enable the goods to qualify for this beneficial preferential tariff. FTAs only bring benefits to the extent in which they are used. So obviously you can you can sign a trade agreement, you can have a trade agreement in place, but because of difficulties with using this trade agreement or lack of information or lack of support, companies can still be trading under full tariffs because they're just not able or not aware of the opportunities. So the, the degree to which FTAs are utilized obviously can can differ quite substantially. EU trade agreements are usually quite quite good in that respect. So they're they're used by a number of of firms, but again, these benefits are quite difficult to capture because you have the specific tariff-related benefits, and then you have everything else to do with increased cooperation, removal of non-tariff barriers, uh, such as um, yeah, trade facilitation, cooperation in areas of customs, cooperation in areas in other areas. So, to quantify all the benefits of an FBA, it's it's, it's quite it's quite difficult, and the, the benefits also change with time. Okay, Maddie, how much of a challenge is it for the UK government to conclude FTAs in terms of the resources required, the training of staff? Yeah, so, I mean, again, I was talking about the Department of International Trade earlier, and there has been a lot of effort to try and build up negotiation, negotiating capability within within it. What the IFG has heard when we, we talk to people about this is, and, you know, other countries which do conduct their own um, independent trade policy, is that really you gain it with experience so there is there is something about that the idea that the uk wants to go straight for the us and, and try and, and take on one of the, quite a big beast um there's a bit of a question whether that is necessarily the wisest thing to do because actually uk negotiators haven't got a lot of experience and i think there's also quite an interesting question about how the Department of International Trade draws on expertise in other departments in the government so Although you might um, you might have a sort of central place that, that coordinates trade policy, obviously the expertise about, for example, how agriculture works, how fisheries work, the environmental regulation, that sits in DEFRA, for example. And so actually there is a real, and, you know, again, the relationship with business, a lot of that sits in the um, Department for Business, um, Energy and Industrial Strategy base. So there's quite an interesting question about how the UK government is planning on bringing together that expertise to allow it to actually be able to enter 
to trade negotiations with the sort of knowledge that they need. I mean, it's also worth saying that not even this isn't just a question about how it works in other departments in Whitehall in the UK government. It's also about how it should work with the devolved administrations, with the Scottish and Welsh governments, you know, and, and Northern Irish executive as well, to, to bring forward their um, knowledge and expertise and understanding of these policy areas in Scotland and Wales. And of course, there is the small point of the businesses and the, the business associations, which actually will be uh, using or benefiting from or being challenged by the, these FTAs, civil society, etc. How is the UK proposing to consult with these stakeholders? So one of the things that, that DIT has set up is a strategic trade advisory group um, that does have representatives from business groups, but also from some civil society as well. Um, I think there's also, I think there's the, the plan will be to, to have specific sectoral groups to accompany different trade negotiations sort of depending on what, what the scope of the FTA might be. I think that it's really important for the government to recognise that actually engaging with those business groups and also civil society will, will first, I mean, it will help business take advantage of whatever trade deals you strike. But it's also a way for the government to publicly set out why it's made certain trade-offs and why its priorities are the way that they are. And I think that can be very, very useful. Holger, the um, if you look at the the international trade news, it's resolutely bad at the moment. You've got the US and China at each other's throats. You've got the WTO in a in a state of crisis. Does this make it a bad time for the UK to be sort of going out, striking out on its own, or or you know could there actually be a benefit in having a, a new kid on the block who is open to sort of open trade and doing business with the rest of the world? I think to start off with the difficulties that, that we currently face, I think it's currently a world of tremendous difficulties, largely because the actions that the US and China have taken are quite opposite to what the WTO tries to do, and quite often in rather flagrant breach of WTO law, and hence problematic. The the attacks on the appellate body, while the appellate body currently no longer really exists. If you want Court of Appeals for Trade, uh, currently is no longer there. All of this speaks to a lot of difficulties. And what is clear is that it will take a lot of effort to get international trade back to a somewhat rules-based system. And I think the UK can play a productive role here. But we have to be also realistic about the productive role. Meaning, for example, if the U.S. is hell-bent on achieving a certain goal, it is unlikely that the U.K. can somehow influence that and bring the U.S. back to compliance with rules. It is unlikely that where the U.S. has pushed with all of its force for services liberalization, that the voice of the U.K. alone will make a huge difference. But I think the U.K. can play a very, very productive role by building alliances in the background and building consensus. And I think that can be a very productive role the UK plays. So a very, very difficult environment, certainly not the environment in which you would want to set out and start your own trade policy. But well, you have to play with the cards you are given. Uh, you can't, well, you can't influence that. But certainly also a role the UK can play. Although I do think that role is often picked up for public relation purposes in a very, very unrealistic manner. 
but that doesn't mean there isn't a productive role the UK can and will play. Emily, do you think the UK is going about its trade strategy in the right way? Is it transparent enough? Should it be going about things differently? What might it learn from the example of other countries, other negotiating bodies, uh, countries around the world? Well, I think what we're seeing in the UK is a bit of a vacuum, actually. We're not sure how these um, different groups and procedures will be formalized. And I think the concern is that they won't be. And what we have now, this very, very strong role of the executive vis-a-vis parliament and relatively limited transparency and relatively limited role for business, as others have picked up on, will become the UK's trade strategy. We could contrast, for example, with the EU, ironically, the, the UK taking back control over its trade negotiations gives parliament less of a role than it would have, well, at least the European parliament has a much stronger role in EU trade negotiations than the UK parliament currently has in UK trade negotiations. So the EU parliament, for example, can help set the mandate for the negotiations. They can vote whether or not to approve the final free trade agreement. But I think the larger issue is also that the UK is just in this incredible state of flux with respect to its domestic legislation because it's taking on EU legislation but also saying that that it wants to diverge in the future. And that makes it a really unique in terms of trade negotiations and and it's, it's regulatory flexibility because normally you have quite a set starting point and you're sort of incrementally moving towards another country, whereas in the UK there's, there's quite a lot of uncertainty. So, for example, in, in a negotiation with the US, if the US wanted to exert pressure on, on the UK to move towards its, its digital privacy or SPS strategy, there might be more, um, more give there. It, it remains to be seen. This is clearly a complex topic, and we've addressed quite a number of the different facets of it, although there's plenty more that we could have said. But just to um, draw things towards a a conclusion, I'm going to ask each of you a question. I'd be interested to get your views. So the Conservative government in its manifesto for the uh, December 2019 election set a target that 80% of UK trade would be covered by free trade agreements within the next three years. Now, how would you rate the probability of this target being met? Who'd like to go first? Okay, so I'll I'll just jump in there. Go on then. I think the first thing is that I have a problem with this number as such, in that coverage of a trade deal, what does that even mean? It seems to me that what we're speaking about is saying having an agreement with a country, and then the trade with that country will enter into the statistics. That doesn't quite say anything about how liberalizing and how beneficial that agreement is. So meaning, take, for example, Norway. We now have a trade continuity agreement with Norway, but it is merely on tariffs, because, of course, Norway is a member of the EEA, and trade continuity with regard to the EEA would be impossible without actually being a member of the EEA, and we didn't want that. Uh, How beneficial is that? Well, not with regard to trade as the deal that was there before. So the number does not quite say what one would hope it would say. Having some sort of agreement with countries with which we have 80% of our trade, yes, I think that's very much possible, but also probably not the right metric we should use. Just wanted to say in terms of 
the likelihood of rolling over these agreements and, and what Holger was saying. Another reason why this number is quite, um, it's more of a headline rather than the natural number is because these trade statistics or the, or the percentages were taken when obviously the UK was a member of the EU. So the continuity agreements or the rollovers of the existing agreements only cover bilateral trade. These agreements are not, in fact, a continuity agreement because they only cover the trade between the UK and that country with how integrated supply chains are between the UK and the EU. We're yet to see what it actually means in practice, but it's still only bilateral trade and it, it still will have an impact of the, of the amount of trade. So the, the volume of trade with the UK while the UK was a member of the EU and the volume of trade going forward might be completely different things. Of course, the, the government has made a huge investment in the idea of making a success of Brexit. And Maddie, I wonder if uh, you project yourself three years into the future. Do you think that the government will be able to look back at its uh, manifesto pledges and claim success in uh, whatever metric it chooses to uh, assess for that success? I think it's obviously going to be quite interesting. You know, you can say you want 80 percent of your trade to be covered by trade agreements, but there is obviously a question, as, as Holger sort of said, about what, what the scope of those agreements actually will be. I mean, I think what's also quite interesting, and in terms of particularly, you know, looking at it from a manifesto perspective, is what, again, what the UK government hasn't really had to deal with before is public reaction to what they, negotiate, you know, with to trade, really. So all of it's been done in Brussels, and there's been quite, it's been quite easy for the UK government to sort of hide behind the EU and say, oh, you know, the reason we haven't, um, opened up certain markets is because of the French farmers or whatever it is, you know, they actually not not have to confront the reality of sort of public perception on trade. And I think, you know, um, not to sort of go on about the US deal, but obviously that's going to be quite interesting in terms of the scope of that. The, during the election campaign, there was a big discussion whether the NHS was on the table. And obviously that's a very emotive issue for voters. So I think it's going to be quite interesting to see how UK government actually can effectively do that. And I think they might find it harder to get public support for some of the trading priorities and maybe they necessarily thought to start with. So I think I think it's quite difficult to look into a crystal ball and say whether or not they're going to be successful. I think a lot will depend on what happens this year with the EU negotiations, but also if the UK does try and do some sort of agreement with the US, even if it's pretty limited, that will be quite interesting to see how that is received. Emily, some final thoughts? One issue that we haven't touched on is the the lack of coordination in terms of the role of devolved nations. And we know from the um, from the election result that there's some very serious rifts, particularly between Scotland and England, in terms of where they want trade policy to go. And certainly a U.S. trade negotiation could sort of put some dynamite under that relationship. So I think that's that's something important to keep in mind as well. It's all going to be quite combustible, I suspect, over the next few years. There we have to bring things to a close. Thank you very much to all of our guests, to Emily Lidgate, to Anna Josefska, to Maddie Timont-Jack, and to Holger Hestermeyer. And most importantly, thanks to all of you for listening in. We hope you found it edifying, educational and entertaining. Thank you. We look forward to having you join us next time on Trade Bites. Please subscribe to our Trade Bytes podcast series brought to you by the UK Trade Policy Observatory with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council.